Thank you. If you would open your Bibles and turn to chapter 14 in the book of Acts, chapter 14 in Acts. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there those the end of the pew and uh, you, can, you can find that. Um, and I don't know the page, but I do know that they're there. Uh, but Acts uh, towards the end, New Testament, uh, Acts chapter 14 and verse verses eight through 18 today in our trek through this book, I'll be preaching the message today, the power of the gospel to save the nations, the power of the gospel to save the nations. I begin reading here in verse eight. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Just a footnote there in verse 9, you see, is the word saved. It's actually the word for salvation. Verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men! Why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without Witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. May God bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. Amen. Again, the message I've titled The Power of the Gospel to Save the Nations because what we see here is the inability for anything else to save the nations. By the end of this text, you see it says here, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Meaning that what was set forth to them had no possibility of saving them. And what was set forth to them was the natural revelation that everyone in every place in all times experiences. In other words, every human being goes out and sees the same things. We have the same evidence that's set before us day 
after day after day. It is never sufficient to save anyone, but it is sufficient to condemn every man for rejecting God. Because it is plain in the entire universe that there is a creator. And it is plain that he is the one who has given us good. When we are at difficult times, painful times, times of loss, often I'll ask those who are struggling with the why question of evil and say, you know, the question really is not why they're evil in the world. The question is, why is there any good in the world? Why hasn't mankind destroyed themselves by now? And if there's ever a day where we can look out and ask that question, it is today. If you look at just the absolute insanity and delusion in people's minds, they've lost their inability to think and to reason. The question would be, why is there any good? Why is there any pleasure? Why is there any joy in the world at all, let alone life itself? And the answer, of course, is set forth by Paul, is that God has given a witness. He gave you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It's a witness of God sufficient enough to condemn every man. But the point of our text today is that this insufficiency points us to a gospel that is sufficient. Because in the beginning of the text, what we see demonstrated here is that there is something that can save mankind. There is something that can save the religious that are under the law, those who are not under the law, and those going forward, there's something that can save people that that is not found in natural revelation. And we see it said in the words, Paul speaking. OK, now Paul is proclaiming Jesus. We have that assumed because we've read what God did to Paul. He stopped him on the road to Damascus. He was confronted as a religious man under the law, realizing that he was actually persecuting Christ himself when he went after the church. Christ had united himself to his people. He is always united to his people. And to harm his people is to do harm to his name. That's a serious thing because the Bible says that the one who takes the Lord's name in vain, he will not hold him guiltless. It is a serious thing to blaspheme the name of God to take his name and to drag it under the mud. A lot of people, or I should say trample it at all, a lot of people look at the um, Mosaic Covenant and they say, oh, how harsh, how severe it is. People were, were, were struck dead for grabbing hold of the ark as it was being carried. They were told strictly not to do so. They were struck dead. They got to the foot of a mountain and they would be... Um, Struck dead by the holiness, the, the, the awesomeness, the greatness of God. And we tend to think with the heretics that have followed in the, uh, from the New Testament church, we tend to think that this God of the New Testament is no longer a severe, holy, awesome, glorious God who his presence would strike us dead without a mediator. We would... We would buy into this lie that God somehow has changed in the coming of Christ. But the reality is the need is not for God to change and nor has he. He does not change. The need is for man to change. And it is through the mediatorship of Jesus that man is not slain 
by this benevolent, kind, glorious, beautiful God who has not changed. This God is the God who made us. And if there is such a God who is this holy in the Mosaic Covenant, then under the New Covenant, you can be sure he's the same. In fact, we find that very statement in Hebrews. It says, if, if, if it deserved punishment in the Mosaic, how much more will it be for the one who has trampled underfoot the blood of the Son of God? He may have been given a really false form of Christianity before this morning, but I'm here to announce to you that the same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The same holy God of Mosaic Covenant is the same holy God of the New. And in fact, the penalty is more severe to play fast and loose with God in these times than it ever was. This God is eternally holy. This God is worthy of worship by every man, woman, boy, and girl. This God is not only holy, He's good. He's not only just, He is benevolent. He's not only sovereign, He is kind. And so we read, portrayed in this text, a man who's crippled from birth. Well, who made the, the man who's crippled from birth? We studied the other week about a man who was born blind, and it was asked, did this man sin or his parents? And the idea was brought out well, that there were some that thought the baby could sin in the womb and be born that way. Or there was even some idea historically that of, of almost a, a reincarnation type belief, a false belief that the person had done bad in one life and come to the next. These false teachings, these things like this, are very prevalent in pagan societies. This man is crippled from birth. He had never walked. He never knew what it was to walk. Now, there's some clues in the text that what is happening here is a sign, which we know from Acts and studying this, the signs are signs for judgment particularly upon the unbelieving Jews of Jerusalem. Because when this testimony is sent forth to the Roman world, Jesus said the end would come. There would be a destruction of Jerusalem. Not one stone will be left upon another. So there's something going on here leading up to a judgment for unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. And it is a testimony to us a clear testimony to us that it will be the same with the entire history of the world. That we can, on the one side, we can hope in the fact that the gospel will go forward without fail to the ends of the earth. But at the same time, it is a witness to scoffers who say, where's the promise of his coming? And they say he's not back and they make fun of the whole thing. Well, we can point back to the book of Acts. He kept his word. We can point to books like Second Peter. He kept his word. We can see there was a punishment meted out in history. Now, the issue here, though, is revealed to us later in the text. And I love to preach the whole chapter, um, but there's so many good 
nuggets in each of them that we're going to take each one by one. But we have to jump forward a little bit. Look at the end, verse 26, 27 in particular. The interpretation of what was happening to the cripple is this. There was a work that had been done through this and other things that followed. But then it says this. They declared all that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The interpretation of the text is found right within the chapter. And what is being said is this healing of this cripple born from birth, never had walked, is about a door being opened of faith for Gentile believers. There's a a historic thing happening at this moment in redemptive history. And that explains some of the language, because if you're reading in the Greek, and you're not expected to read in the Greek here, but you are expected to simply look at the benefit of the translation before you, where it says, the one who has been made well here, it's noted there in the English Standard Version, be saved. It's not the normal word for healing. It's the normal word for salvation. And so it agrees with the end of the text telling us like a bookend, this is what this is about. This is not merely about the healing of a crippled man. This is about the saving of the nations. Well, how did this man get saved? Well, he didn't get saved because of his birth. Paul says later that it's not of noble birth that a man is saved by. And it's not because of his ability. He had no ability. He had no ability to walk. He never had walked. He never experienced what it was to walk. And so it is the condition of the sinner reflected in the physical condition of this man that tells us that salvation must come by something that is not natural, something that is not simply a witness in the skies or on the supper table. There must be something more that made this man walk as a demonstration of what it meant for a door of faith to be open to the Gentiles. Well, what is that? He listened to Paul speaking. Well, what is caught up in that? We know later, as it says, that God's the one who opens the heart to pay attention to what is spoken by Paul. We read that in chapter 16 of God fears and God worshipers, which, by the way, you can be a fearer of God, a worshiper of God, and lost. Because salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. It's commendable that you fear God. It's commendable that you reverence His name. But salvation must come through trusting and looking to Christ for salvation and not your good works. Not anything you do, not anything you perform, not your church attendance, not your religiosity in your home, none of that. Salvation must come through Christ alone. And Paul was one who said that he boasted in nothing else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The way is none other than Christ. The truth is none other than Christ. The life comes from none other than Christ who is the life. And so it was as he listened to Paul, we can trace what Paul was able to see in the man. Paul looking intently at him. And in one way, you you can 
waver back and forth here. Did Paul have some supernatural ability to see something in the man that maybe we can't see naturally? Perhaps. Perhaps. But I think it's actually a more natural occurrence. It indicates here that as he spoke, the man's listening. He saw in this man, he had faith. I think we can see that. We can often see that as the word is proclaimed, you can tell where there's faith because those who are of the Lord Jesus, they pay attention to his word. They love his word. They love his law. They love his gospel. They love it all. And so what you have here is Paul, I think, just is naturally observing as he looks intently at him, he sees that this man had faith to be made well or saved. But let's take it as, as the fact, the context is he's being healed. He's going to be, he's made to, to leap. He's made to walk. And isn't that a funny thing that he didn't just walk, he sprang up. I mean, he didn't know how to walk, so sprung up. He didn't know you're supposed to get up slow. And he sprang up and he walked. The miracle took place. But why did it take place? Well, the faith that was there, Paul would know, is a faith that's able to save him. And God, in his good pleasure, he didn't have to do this. But as a demonstration of the forgiveness the man had experienced, he makes him also walk. A man who never walked before. Why? As a demonstration that the gospel that saves has come to the Gentiles. This is what this is front loaded with. It is saying in contrast to what could not save natural revelation. The sun, the moon, the stars, the beauty out here, uh, the, the food on the table, the rains early and latter, the crops that grow, that God gives all these things. That can't save. And so what is he saying? He's saying the gospel saves the nations. And isn't that good news today? Because you look out and you realize nothing can save these people. No amount of reasoning could save these people. No amount of joy could save these people. No amount of blessing can save these people. The gospel must be brought to the people. That's. The front-loaded message of this text, as you see in redemptive history, Acts 14, the gospel is now going to those who are called the nations. The Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled in that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through the seed, Jesus, who was promised, who himself would become our circumcision, who would be bloodied on a cross, who would have the blood that would cover all the sins of all his people whom he came to die for. Whom he agreed to come to the Father and the Spirit before the foundation of the world and the eternal plan of God, according to Ephesians 1, that he came, he died, and he did the work as he prayed in John 17 that he was given to do. He would not lose one of his elect people before the foundation of the world. The good news today is if you're a believer today, it is because God from all eternity had chosen you and he had called you in time and he had justified you 
forgiving you all your sins and declaring you legally righteous before him. He has united himself to you, dear believer, brother, sister in Christ. And in doing so, he not only has justified you, but in uniting himself to you, he's adopted you into his family. He has made you his child, his his heir. All that is Christ is yours. He has made you part of the family of God by virtue of adoption as sons. And so it is that you share the the rights to all that he purchased for you. He redeemed you. He took you out of the land of slavery to sin. And he brought you into freedom so that you can conquer sin day by day, year by year for the glory of his name. Showing that he keeps his promises to the individual sinner. And so we can have hope he will keep his promises to save the world. And not only that, but that he sanctifies you definitively. So it is not that you need some Roman priest today to walk back and forth through booths and to tell them that you've done wrong and that he would give you something to make it right. No, the only thing that makes you right is what Jesus did. And there is a sanctification that's experiential that flows out of that. In the conquering of your own little city and kingdom in your life. But don't ever lose the fact that those whom he justified, he also glorified. That there's no purgatory to go and to burn off the sins. It would take far too long. The fact of the matter is, the sins were taken off by the blood of Christ when he died on a cross for them. And when he was buried in the grave, he took them to the depths of the sea and cast them as far as the east is from the west for all who will believe. And in his resurrection, he made it clear his acceptable sacrifice that he justified us and declared us legally righteous. Isn't that good news today? That the sinner doesn't have to go through life laden with guilt. 90 something percent of the problems that people go to psychiatry and psychology for are found in the fact that they are dealing with guilt. Something that they feel they should have done or something that they shouldn't have done. And it is plaguing their lives. Their consciences are laden. And so Christ says to such, come to me. You don't come to the law. You don't come to natural revelation. Come to Christ. Come to me, all you labor heavy laden. I will give you rest. And the most audacious thing, the most prideful thing, the most insane thing people do is they refuse to come. And it's not because the door is not wide open. It says it's open here. It's foolish. It's folly. You're, you're in a cell for your crime, but the door's been wide open for you. And you're told you can go out guilt-free. But the sinner says, I don't want to go out. You see, that's insanity. And the only person that rescues a person from that insanity is Jesus Christ alone. Christ is the Savior. Not what is out here in nature. God made that. But God has chosen to exalt His Son, Jesus. 
And so we look to Christ as the church. We look to him as our salvation. There's none other name under heaven by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a revelation of hope in the cripple here that is a revelation that the door is wide open to the nations of the gospel. Now, the second thing to notice is the response, though, to all that. Response to this sign by the nations proves the point that if they don't get the gospel, the best they can do is make more idols, even out of men, even out of religious men. And so we read, when the crowd saw this, what Paul had done, doesn't take Paul out of the equation. God was using him and Paul did do this, but it was by the Lord. They lifted up their voices saying, Lucanian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. These are Greek gods. Zeus would be like the king of the gods and Hermes will be in the interpreter of the gods. You go to seminary, you take a class called hermeneutics. It's a word that is framed off of that Greek god's word, Hermes, to speak of how do you interpret the Bible. Unfortunate name for a great thing. But we have that influence on everything in our culture. The month of June for example, is being hailed by pagans to celebrate every barbarity and every sexual license and everything that we wouldn't even want to speak of. And many people are intimidated by these people, intimidated by the threats. Well, actually, I want to give you something that will intimidate you even more if you're without Christ. Because we are not up against simply man. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities in heavenly places. We're not up against just man. We're up against demons. We're up against the demonic realm and Satan himself with these things. When I think of the month of June, I have things I celebrate. I celebrate I was saved around this month in 1997. I was baptized a week later on June 8th. I had my third daughter on the 19th, the same day as my papa's birthday, who I just did his burial. I have things during this month I give thanks for. I praise God for. It's a month of Celebration of many things, but yet there's often a hijacking of every month. Even the name of the month, June, comes from a Greek god named Juno. It's a god of a god of fertility, a god that protects society, among other things. And a Greek name for it is Thanos or Thanos, T H E N A S, I believe. And the month was set forth really as a name of, of a pagan deity. And 
There are many things to learn about the month. It's not a, a lesson in mythology, but the fact of the matter is, is that there's not a coincidence as to why certain months are being chosen. This Greek god, famous for fertility, famous for uh, marriage, famous for things like this, is the very things that we see being attacked on the month of June in 2023. It's not by chance. The gods, if you will, the demonic realm, if you will, the wicked nature of these demons are targeting and are after the souls of men, women, boys, and girls. Their goal is to destroy marriage. Their goal is to destroy family. Their goal is to destroy independent freedom, private property, and everything of the like. The tyranny that takes place even in our government is not merely we're wrestling against politics. We are wrestling against Satan. We are wrestling against demonic filled people. Our, our war is not with the people themselves so much as it is the ideology that is coming through them as tools to destroy a nation. And if you have any other view of the future that does not take what Acts proclaims to us, God keeps his word to bring the gospel to the nations, then you have no explanation as to why and how and if there will ever be a nation to come. And we can have hope, Christian, because the gods do not rule. There are really there are no gods. There are nothing before God. The demonic realm will be punished eternally in hell on the lake of fire. Satan himself will be cast there. God has bound him to the sense that he cannot deceive the nations when it comes to the gospel. We can proclaim the gospel and it changes lives. R.J. Rushdooney, I love to read R.J. Rushdooney. A lot of people need to write apology letters to him in the grave and let him know how sorry they are for looking at his, his assessment of history of the fact that he had written many things down about statism and all the problems in the world. He was right about them. R.J. Rushdoony speaks about, even though he's mischaracterized for this, he says very clearly, it is not the sword that's going to save people. It's, it's the gospel and confidence in the gospel that's going to save people. And the problem is, the problem is, is that we want to take up arms in politics or even arms themselves physically, thinking that's how we're going to change the world. Rush Jr. was right. The fact of the matter is, is only the gospel. Not only can it, I think we need to be very specific. It's not a possibility. It's a surety. The Christian doesn't live here with fear. Except he doesn't spend time in the word. And except that he's not under the word proclaimed. The Christian does not have to fear. The Christian should not fear. The Christian shouldn't lose hope. God is ruling over all these events. God is in control of these things. God has ordained these things. So his glorious name will be proclaimed in all the earth. He's doing everything he does and ordaining everything that happens, good and evil, for the ultimate praise of his son. And so it is, how would we see 
the glorious diamond of the gospel if we do not see the darkness and just the insanity and the delusion that is happening today. How would we want another king if our trust is in the present king? How would we want to long after resting in Christ our king if we find all of our rest in the government of our king today? Everybody knows he's not providing rest. It's all a sham. We joke, and I've joked even this morning, things are offered for free. They're never free. What Christ gives is free. It's grace. He gives on the basis not of your works and not of your effort and not your sword and not your politics. He gives it on the basis of his finished work on the cross. We're up against more than perhaps you imagined. But we also have a God that's more glorious than hopefully you've ever imagined. It says the response of these Hindus, for, the, for lack of a better term, that's really what they acted like before Hinduism came to being, is we see they bring oxen and garlands. They do that today. It's the best they can do with natural revelation. It's the best they can perform. Why are they doing it? Well, naturally speaking, they were taught from their youth on up of a fable, a mythology. And in that mythology, there was Zeus and Hermes. And it was written down that there was a time when Zeus and Hermes had literally come to their place incarnate through two men. And they found an elderly couple there. No one was hospitable to Zeus and Hermes in their legend, but this one elderly couple, and they were hospitable to them, and they took them up to a mountain and destroyed the entire village of people. The entire city. And the legend says that then Zeus and Hermes turned this couple's home into gold and basically blessed them because of their hospitality. The rest were destroyed, by the way, by a flood. This was the pagan myth. So What they're thinking is they see Paul and Barnabas come to town, do a miracle. And in that miracle, they said, hold on a second here. We've heard about this. We heard what went wrong that time. And we're not going to make the mistake again. Because the myth actually names this very place as the place it happened. And they said, hold on. We're going to make sure we honor these gods. So they do what only they know how. And they get garlands. Again, Hindus do this. And they bring out oxen to sacrifice with the crowds. 
This teaches us a couple things. One, it teaches us how influential what we teach our children from young days is upon a culture. The entire crowd is coming out. You can assume this is men, women, boys, and girls. They all are taught of this myth. It influences the way they think. Be careful what word you are laying before your children. Because it will influence them. It will direct them one way or another. But another thing is you see the hardness of the heart. The inability for these people to see anything beyond their myths. And to do anything beyond what they know. And so what happened is. The third thing. We see a revelation of hope in the cripple. A response of the heathen to the sign. But then we see this redirection of honor by the apostles. We see that this again proving that the power to save Gentiles is in the gospel only. Because what the apostles do is first they tear their garments. And that's a common sign of distress and mourning. They tear their garments as mourning over their response. That this is not... The response that they're laboring for, not only that, it's the it's the total opposite response of what should be happening. And they tear their garments, they rush into the crowd, they take action. Notice they're not like the world right now. A lot of people out there today are left to go in their sin because people don't care to tell them they're in their sin. I mean, one of the saddest things when you look out of this world, isn't it? You look out and you see people and, and they're identifying as something they're completely not. Their, their reasoning is completely gone. And when one person comes and says to them what they really are, they're just enraged. That didn't happen overnight. A lot of people just didn't really care about the individual. Our culture is careless. They're not willing to tell the truth. So, your truth's your truth. I heard a woman say, well, what if I think, the person says, what if you think, I think uh, you don't exist? And they say, well, I guess I don't exist. That, that's how far... We're going. It's your truth, whatever it is. So here's the thing. You know what? My assessment of this is this. And I think the words assessment speaking there is the fact that we as Christians are called to care, though it cost us. Like we can we can get upset at the world all day long and say. Nobody cared to tell them and the parents didn't care the government didn't care uh, people around them didn't care but that does not give us a cause not to care someone must tell them that's what great missions was built on they were willing to risk their lives to tell them the truth they were willing to tear their garments they were willing to rush into a crowd at the expense of their lives and their reputation because they cared
Many churches, let's admit, many churches don't care. If they did, they wouldn't let half the people teach in their churches that they do. They let people that are unqualified and ungifted. Everyone in their churches knows that they're absolutely heinous in their lives. They have nothing right in their homes, and yet they let that person teach in the church. Because the people don't care. They're not gifted. They're like a bad song before Simon Cow and American Idol. No one loved them enough to say, don't do that. And they let them embarrass themselves in the matter. Why? Why are these people allowed to teach in churches that way? Because the people in the pews aren't caring They fear men more than they fear God. And it is uncomfortable. But it is our duty in love to identify gifted men, called men, qualified men to occupy the teaching of the church. It's Christ's church, Christ's bride, and we need to care about his bride. But people, if you were to write this and today, nobody would rush out. Nobody would tear their garments. Nobody would correct them. They would just say, your truth is your truth. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the definition of reality. The Bible tells us what is real and what is fake. And when the world makes you feel like you're crazy, dear brother and sister, you go to the word where reality is set forth. Because when you read and look at some of the stuff out there, it can make you think, where did I wake up at? Am I the one that's crazy? That's only what manipulative tyranny does. And we're seeing it repeated in many ways. It's really just a Babylonian system that will fall. And the church needs to be ready to rebuild. Now, they didn't just go out, though, and show this expression, run into the crowd, tear their clothes. They taught them. They didn't teach them here enough to save them. They didn't have the time for that. But they taught them. They began to correct them. And they teach them that... We are men like you, like nature with you. In other words, we're not like God. This teaches us something about worship. We're not here to worship you. We're not here to worship me. We're not here to worship any man. Only one's worthy of worship who has a nature not like ours. A nature that is not affected from the outside. He is without passions, as the confession says. He alone is God. He alone is Lord. And he is not affected in his happiness and in his joy and in his and in his love and in his hate and in everything that he feels by what we do. He's unlike us. But yet man wants to make a God like himself, an idol like himself. And so they said, look, we are also men. 
of like nature with you. That disqualifies us from worship. And then it says, we bring you good news. Of course, that is a word for gospel, but the gospel is not being fully proclaimed yet. So the best they're going to be able to do is make idols. But they say the first part, they say that you should turn. That's the word for repent from these vain things to the living God. They introduce the one in whom they are to worship is God, the living God. He's the one who made heaven and earth. And that's where you need to begin with people who have no categories, no beginnings. You can't begin with the Gospel of John because they don't even believe there's a creator. So you've got to get to the creation. And they tell them plainly, he is the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And that assaults the humanistic worldview that wants to say we came from anything else but God. That we evolved out of something there instead of the fact the Bible says we came Out of nothing, God created the world ex nihilo out of nothing. And so you see here, they're declaring that fact. And it says past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. This is the explanation as to how we're still here. He allowed it. Why second Peter say, why does he let those scoffers continue on? Is it because of the scoffers? No, it says he's patient toward you, church. Christ has in mind the whole body of believers from beginning to end, those who will be saved as well as those who have been and are being saved. He has in mind the whole. So that's why one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day to the Lord, because he is so patient to let a world go on because he's more concerned about saving everyone whom he died for than he is about just simply destroying it in a tantrum. He is not like us. And therefore, he alone is to be worshipped. If he's like us, we would have ended the deal. But here Paul is saying in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. He permitted them to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness even to them. In his kindness and his love, he reigns on the just and the unjust alike. He gives you rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And that's where the sermon ended, not because they didn't have more to say. But because they couldn't scarcely stop them from doing what they wanted to do. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to worship the men. Now, again, the best natural revelation can do is to make men make more idols. So with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them, but they had something right. They, they almost saw something, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't enough to see because as best as man could do, he could see some of the truth. We can see it in the fact they believed Somehow the divine would come down and incarnate himself in men. Well, as Christians, we know that did happen. But it wasn't by two gods. It was by one true God. The second person of the Trinity, the one God in three persons, sent his son who became incarnate. Why? 
Why? So that he would die in our place as a sufficient substitute. If he had not become man, he could not be a substitute for men. So the Bible declares early that there would be one who would come and bruise the head of the serpent. But in some way, this one also would find a bruising at his heel. And we find that this one incarnate comes, he becomes man. But while never losing his deity. In humility, he did not take it a right to himself, but he was fully divine. And he comes able While at the same time being man as a substitute, he comes as a sufficient one because being God, he's the only one without sin and he's able to keep the law perfectly and he's able to die and bear the sins of the whole world. They couldn't see that because until that is declared, men have nowhere to go to be saved. The lesson is our trust in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power, unlike the physical sword, to change nations. We're not in a hopeless place at this time in history. This time is the example of what it means to take the gospel to the nations. And we've been so proud in America. Because we think we were unlike the rest of the world. And now there's people literally crying out. Uganda, please come send missionaries to save us. Why? Because men are all the like nature throughout the world. United States, Africa, Iraq, China, North Korea, South Korea, all the islands. Men are but men. The same sun shines on them. The same rain comes down on them. And if people don't share the gospel with them, they won't be saved. But the good news is not only is the gospel able to save. But according to the word of God and according to the fulfillment we see of the testimony of Acts. The gospel will save all his people. And he'll do increasingly so. He's the prince of peace. And on his shoulders is the government resting. And his peace and his government will increase without end. This is the promise of the gospel. Just like this man crippled, it declares to us an open door. So much so that Romans 5, 6 says, while we were ungodly, God saved us. He did not save us when we got godly enough. He saved us at the point we didn't know how to walk. We didn't surely know how to even leap. We did not ever from birth have anything to make us right with God It is this message of the gospel for while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, he he died for us. Are you ungodly? Good news. He died for the ungodly. He did not die for 
People who think that they're God, they die for people who know they are but men. Matthew Henry says this, Herein the scripture is fulfilled that when the wilderness of the Gentile world was made to blossom as the rose, then shall the lame man leap as the deer. And I say this, those that by the grace of God are cured of their spiritual lameness must show it by leaping with a holy exaltation and walking in holy conversation. Let's stand together for prayer. It is to you alone that belongs the glory, our Father in heaven, whose Son came and died and paid the ultimate price for us. And by his life and death, we can be free and are free, having looked to him and trusted him and your spirit applying to us all that Christ has purchased for us. You have chosen, Lord, to set before us two sacraments, one of baptism for those initiated into the body that are demonstrating that they have been united to Christ and one with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, being immersed in the waters and raised to walk in the newness of life. Father, we who are believers have accepted that ordinance. But we also accept the second, whereby you have set before us a table, a sacrament declaring to us the promises that you will apply the benefits to us of the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of our Lord, making us into prophets and priests and kings in this world, prophets to declare the word of God to a lost and dying world, the gospel, priest in order to evangelize and tell people about the Lord and to encourage each other and to counsel one another in the church and kings ruling over our sin, dominating it and making dominion in every place of our lives, the home and the public sphere for your glory. We believe as we take of this which represents the body and this which represents the blood, we re-covenant with you, we renew our covenant with you because you have set before us this in the blood of the new covenant. And we desire at this table all who believe to come and that you would, by your mercy, apply to us as we look to you in faith the spiritual benefits of these things. We need you, Father. We come again on this Lord's Day, beginning this week, saying it once again, we need you. You alone are God, and we being unlike you, we have our whole being in dependence upon you. We pray now for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Let me just say a word before uh, the church comes to take of this. If you're not a believer, if you have not settled that, of course, we would desire that right now you would put your faith in Jesus Christ as proclaimed here today and that you would turn to him. But. But if you're if you're struggling, if you're not there yet, we would just ask you to take this time and just really pray. We believe God hears your prayers. So we see God fears praying and Cornelius. God heard his prayer. We've learned that that was a great discovery. So God hears your prayers. So take some time to pray. Ask him the questions you might have. Seek him. No man's going to be able to give you what you need, except that he opened your eyes to see. If you are a believer today. We would ask that you would be in obedience to the Lord, and that is respecting his holy church.
God has called every one of us to be part of a local body and to submit to his leadership in a local body and to pray for that local body and to minister in that local body. So we desire that those who take of this supper are part of a church. They've been baptized as being initiated into the body and they come taking of that which is before us. And there might be some today, uh, perhaps come from a different tradition than ours. And we don't really even think you're baptized because the Bible doesn't say you are. But we restrict this table mainly to unbelievers. We're simply saying this is meaningless to those who simply don't know what this is about. If you do know what it's about and you come and respect to the Lord and you examine yourself, looking outside yourself for the comfort and encouragement you need, we welcome you. And we welcome you to come and be blessed in hopes that maybe if you're in this area, you might be part of this body and helping us lead the charge of proclaiming the gospel to our community. We love each person here. We desire each person would know the comfort of the Holy Spirit in this time. So you come as God leads.